0: Thank you for standing in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning. We continue in our expository study through the epistle, through the Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to read verses 3 to 5 today. That's uh, that's the section we'll move through in detail. It's part of a sweeping section, verses 3 to 8, where Paul begins to explain to us his heart of prayer for his people. But let us listen to the word of God this morning. Paul writes to the Colossians. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Uh, This you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. This is God's word. May it have its eternal impact on our hearts. Father, come and as you have so many times in this pulpit over so many years with other preachers than I, feed your people, help the Bible text to be opened so that they understand why you wrote it, what it means, what it says in dimension and detail for our lives and how you want us to live it out. Holy Spirit, come and open your precious word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, I uh, wanted to take a moment before I go into the text to, to talk a little bit about preaching. Because some of you are new. And I know we have a lot of different people viewing online that are new. And I wanted to talk a minute or two about the nature of preaching and how I view it so you understand why I teach the way I do. I want to take you into a decision that I had to make 30 years ago as I considered where to go to school and how to approach what a pastor does. I don't know if you know this, but right now there are approximately 500,000 pastors in the United States. That's a lot of preachers. (laughs) Now they come in different, of course, from different churches, different denominations, and different traditions. But they all face the same challenge as this last week began. They all knew that they had a sermon to prepare for this Sunday. Sunday's coming, right? The old pastor joke. But the question that they asked themselves as they faced that challenge, I think reveals a lot about how they view themselves in their role and the kind of preaching that they bring and what their people are hearing this morning, wherever they are across our country. I think this frames the kind of decision that I had to make and the kind of approach that I had to take to preaching because when I came into ministry 30 years ago, there was the beginning of a revolution going on about the role of pastors, the nature of churches, and what preaching was all about. So everybody that's preaching today, even if they're uh, older in the ministry like I am or younger, they've been affected by the revolution. And I think because of that revolution, there are two dimensions or two types of pastors who approach preaching as they approach it. Think about it. Across this country, half a million pastors face the question, I've got a sermon to prepare for this Sunday. And so they would ask themselves, as they looked at that challenge, a dominating question. Some pastors have been taught to believe that they are thinkers and communicators. They are thinker communicators. And they would answer the the whole challenge of a sermon to prepare with this question, what do I want to talk about this week? What do I want to tell the audience this week or my people? And then they begin to answer that question by thinking about, well, what am I interested in? What have I been reading lately? What are the trends in the Christian world that I think should be talked about? What are the new things, the new understandings that we're gaining in Christianity that I think my people need to know? What am I interested in or what do I think they need to know? So the dominant question comes from the mind of the pastor. And that's where often he begins. And then he goes to the Bible. He goes to the Bible and he may find a passage that somewhat indirectly relates to what he's already thought is important or interesting. And so you'll find in his message that you'll hear a lot of what he thinks and occasionally he'll glance down to that passage and bounce off of it a couple times in that message as a way of proving his points. Or he may decide to use a whole collection of different Bible verses from different parts of the Bible not teaching their context but using them because they seem to refer and back up what he believes is important for you to know and the theme of his mind And he may even use multiple different translations of those verses until he finds one that fits his thinking and makes his point what do I want to talk about this week what am I interested in or what do I think they need to know and and so it there's a person coming with an assumption in his mind, and he uses the Bible to back up that assumption. Often when preaching is done like this, you essentially are hearing from a human mind who is speaking to your mind, your life, your interests, your thinking. And so you have a teacher communicator, a thinker communicator speaking from his Christian mind to your mind. And Often you'll go away instructed or intrigued. But often you'll find that even hours after you've been under that kind of teaching or days or weeks after, you won't be able to remember what was said. You remember you were moved or intrigued or there was a principle that you thought was helpful. But when it comes to what the scripture was talking about, And what he was talking about, it evaporates because it was just a conversation. It was thoughts from one mind to your mind. It operated at a very human level. Now, on the other hand, there are other pastors that face the question, I've got a sermon to prepare this Sunday. And they began to face that with a different question. Instead of asking, what do I want to talk about this week? They ask what does this text mean that's before me? And how can I explain it to my flock? Because they have seen themselves not as thinker communicators, but as Bible teachers. Dare I say is what the Bible calls them pastor teachers, Ephesians 4.11. See, they have a different mindset. They don't come with their idea and seek a text. They have a text that they have asked the Lord to lead them to in meditation and in prayer. Either it's one single text that they will teach out of in what's called a textual sermon, or maybe a gathering of different texts on a biblical subject that is called or results in what is called a topical sermon, or they may be expository preachers. They may believe that you have the, be- the best chance of getting and hearing from the whole counsel of God and the mind of God when they take a Bible book and they begin at the beginning and they teach it systematically through section by section, verse by verse, from beginning to end, as, by the way, it was written. Interesting, isn't it? They wrote it as units of thought, as full gospels, as clear epistles, and the first thing we've done in our new age of preaching is ignore how they were written. And we come to them like bits and bytes in a computer program and pull out the bits and bytes we like. No. The expositor comes. He doesn't ask, what do I want to talk about this week? He comes to a text and he asks God, Father, what does this text mean and how can I explain it to my flock? He's not interested in what he's interested in as a man or a thinker. He's trying to find out what God is interested in. And he wants to know why God put this text in its place, and he labors in the text, and he, he he researches the text and he observes the text and he meditates on the text and he looks at other Bible texts that might bring, bring bring illumination to it, and he goes to commentators and wise Christian minds and other tools that help him understand what the text means. He wants to know what God is interested in saying to a flock. And so when he comes to preaching, he doesn't occasionally use the word. He goes to the word itself for the entire message. In its essence, we have a core value in our church about preaching. We, we, we state in our core values. You can read it on our website. We believe in biblical preaching and biblical preaching is preaching that gets the content of the message from the content of the text. You say, well, that's so obvious. Not after the revolution in preaching, it isn't. The revolution in preaching moved away from gaining text for message and went to get to the mind of the presenter and the needs of the people for a message. And so the the pastor teacher, the Bible teacher, wants the word to be the message. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy, I believe, chapter 4, this young pastor who was being pushed around by people in his church who had different preferences about his preaching and who wanted him to focus on this because he was focusing too much on that and who thought he ought to speak to that issue or their interest. And he was getting pushed around. And Paul said, don't let anybody push you around. You're a pastor teacher. Preach the word. He didn't say preach about the word. He didn't preach, say preach occasionally mentioning the word. He didn't say preach and use the word on occasion. He didn't say any of that. He said go to the word and make the word you're preaching. Preach the word. Make it the content and the essence of what you teach. Now if someone does this, when he presents a message, people are more likely to hear not from the mind of the minister, but from the mind of God. Because that's where it all started. You see, if you go to the text first and you're interested in what God is saying, interested in saying, and you make his words, the primary essence of what you're teaching, then people have a better opportunity to hear not so much from your mind, but from the mind of God. And that's important because the Bible says that you were born again. And when you were regenerated, you were given a new mind. Did you know that? You're a new man or woman in Christ, and you have a new mind in Christ. 1 Corinthians amplifies this heavily. So farther on in Colossians will we see that you are to put on a new mind. And so biblical preaching is taking what's on God's mind and feeding it into your new mind. It is a spiritual event. It's not an intellectual one. It's not an emotional one. It's not a societal one. It's not a, 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 a philosophical one. It is a spiritual event. Biblical preaching. People that may listen to someone who is talking about what he wants to talk about may go away having been instructed and somewhat interested, but people who are are listening to a man who is explaining a text and trying to tell you what God has put in it often walk away with a strange sense of spiritual fullness, of being filled, of being fed in the depths of that new man and being instructed in that new mind. And they'll find more often than not that hours or days or weeks or maybe even years later when they chance across that text, they'll remember it and they'll understand it. They won't remember the preacher so much as the passage if that preacher has done his job. And so 30 years ago, a revolution began to take place over preaching and there was a movement to teach pastors to be more thinkers and communicators and to draw away from teaching them to be Bible teachers. And I had to face that, and I had to choose where to go to school. And I had to choose who to put myself under in pastoral ministry as a mentor. And I had to choose where I would stand in the great great preaching revolution. And 30 years ago, I chose to stand as the second man. And many other pastors have done that too. So for 30 years, I've tried to be the second man who, when he's faced with preparing a sermon this Sunday, asks the second question, what does this text mean? Give me a text, Lord. Either a text from your leading or the next section of the passage of the book that I'm teaching. And so if you're new or you wonder why we're going through a book like this or why I spent such a length of time in Luke and still didn't finish and we're going to get back there someday, Amen. The Lord can't come back until I'm done with Luke. I'm telling you, <laughs> I know that might scare you, but it'll be worth it. You know. That's kind of why I do what I do. And I think that's why our elders believe in biblical preaching. I just thought you should know. Now, because of that, we move through Colossians. We're going verse by verse, of course, through it. And I didn't have to wonder what text I was going to teach this Sunday because the text is the next text. <laughs> I gave you verses 1 to 2 last time and gave you a big introduction to the epistle. Now we're going to move through verses 3 to 8. It's one section, and I'm going to give you my impressions of it. So I looked at verses 3 to 8. In your Bible, as you can see, it's kind of set out as a sweeping section there. It's got some indentation to it. And so I came to the text, and I began to observe it. And the question that came to my mind as a Bible student was, what do I see that this text means? What is it about and it's in its essence, what does it say? Now, I did some research, and I found out that in the Greek language in which Paul wrote this, verses three to eight in your Bible are all one long sentence. "I just love Paul. He goes long and goes deep. I just love the guy." So um, this is because Paul was under the control of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit had a lot to build out in what he was teaching. Paul often also didn't write his epistles. He dictated them, walking back and forth in a room, and he had one of his team members writing out clearly because Paul had visual problems and other things through his persecutions and physical suffering. And, and Paul just would extemporaneously pace back and forth in a room, and it would just kind of flow out of him. And verses 3 to 8 just kind of flow out, and, and you get one thought hits to another, hits to another. And so it's kind of expansive like that. And I thought, okay, Lord, one long Greek sentence. It must be about one idea. And then I thought, well, what's the idea? And I looked at the opening phrase, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And I thought, well, this is about praying for the church. And in fact, more specifically, it's about thanking God for what he's doing in the church. And I thought, well, okay, this is going to be a message about how to pray for your church and how to thank God for your church. In fact, when our staff had our meeting on Tuesday in the middle of the day, they asked me, where do you think you're going to go with the passage? And I said, I think it's about how to give thanks to God for your church. Well, then I studied longer and I asked another question. Well, what is Paul here giving thanks to God for? And I realized as I looked at the whole passage that this isn't just a passage about general thanksgiving. He's thanking God for a very specific thing. It's in the end of verse 5. It's the gospel. And it's what the gospel had done in that church. And in fact, from verse 5 all the way through verse 8, the big issue is not prayer. It's the gospel. And he talks about the power of the gospel in that little house church and what God had done over 10 years to glorify his name in that little church. And I realized, oh, this passage is a passage about thanking God for the greatness of the gospel. It's not just about prayer. It's about the greatness of the gospel. And I began to go through it and make my English text observations and take a look at other passages and begin to look at other biblical thinkers. And I realized this is a passage about the greatness of the gospel. And I found eight different dimensions in which the gospel is celebrated here as great. Now, it only made sense as I thought about it because the whole point of the epistle to the Colossians, remember what I told you last week, is two things. To exalt the fantastic Christ and what he's done on that cross and to destroy false teaching that was trying to undermine the greatness of Christ. So it makes sense here. False teaching is always targeted against the gospel, isn't it? It makes sense that Paul starts with celebrating the greatness of the gospel. You see how this epistle begins to move, begins to to grow. And so we're going to talk this week and next. We're going to take this section in two, two Sundays, and we're going to go over these great points of the greatness of the gospel, gospel greatness. So let's open the details together. Let's take a look at it as it begins. Verse three, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul is talking about how he handles this church. By the way, Paul had never been to the Colossian church. He'd never met these people. A man named Epaphras had come to hear Paul preach in Ephesus 10 years before he got saved. Paul discipled him for a few months. And then that man went back to his hometown of Colossae and he began to share the gospel with his family and they came to faith. Then their friends came to faith and this man started a church in Colossae. It was the church of the Colossians, but Paul had never been there. But he hears about their needs and he sends them this epistle and he says, even though I've never met you, I pray for you all the time. That's amazing. Paul was a true pastor. He prayed for his churches. Now, when you take a look at this and realize where Paul was, that's pretty amazing because uh, uh, Paul was in uh, Roman imprisonment. He was uh, under house arrest at the time. He could receive visitors, but he was still chained to a Roman guard 24-7 with wrist chains. And he didn't know when his trial date was going to be. They kept him in the dark about that. And he also didn't know if he might be executed for his preaching of the gospel. And so he woke up every morning with all of that. Woke up in a strange room, chained to a guard, not knowing what the next day would bring. So he woke up every morning. It was a dark morning early. They woke him up. It was cold every day where he was. He faced another day in prison and he didn't know when he'd get out or if he'd get out or even if he'd survive execution. If you were in that situation, what would you be praying about every morning? You'd bow your head and pray to God about your own issues and your own needs. You'd pray for safety. You'd pray for deliverance. You'd pray for for being let loose, you pray for being a better meal than, than today than you had yesterday. But if you're the apostle Paul, you pray for something far different. You pray for the work of the gospel and the people of God. What an amazing man he was. He prayed over his people and over the gospel. Now there's two dimensions to his prayer life. Verses three to eight in this chapter tell us how he thanked God and praised God. And they're introduced in verse three with the word, we pray for you. The word pray there is prosyukamai. And it was a word that meant prayer in all of its dimensions, but it also meant prayer in worship and thanksgiving. It wasn't just requests. And so Paul says, we worship the father. We adore the father and we thank God for what he's done in your midst. And that's verses three to eight. Then he shifts, and later on in a few weeks, we'll study verse 9 through verse 14, and he says, "'And so from this day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled.'" Asking is a different word for, for prayer, aiteo, and it meant very specific requests, urgent requests. And so in verses three to eight, you've got thanksgiving and praise-filled prayer for the gospel. And in verses nine to 14, we're going to learn how to specifically pray for believers, how to specifically pray for his church. It's two different dimensions. Thanksgiving and praise verses three to eight and intercession and requests verses nine to 14. So in our section, we'll now look at how he thanked God and he thanked God for eight dimensions in which the gospel was great in their midst. I think we'll get through the first three today. Let's look at the first one. The first reason he thanked God for the gospel being great is basically wrapped up in this statement. The gospel is great because it changes lives. Look at this. We praise God for you. We pray for you. We thank him. We worship him. Why? Verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Observe your Bibles. He's thanking God for three different ways in which their lives were changed by the gospel. He saw that the gospel, when it came to Colossae, took a bunch of pagan, immoral, materialistic, religiously deceived people living for themselves, living for immorality, living in deception, and living for today. And he saw that it turned them instead into people who had deep faith, verse 4, deep love for all the saints, verse 4, and a great hope about heaven. They were totally different people. They were no longer secularized people living without God and living just for themselves. They were people of faith and hope and love. By the way, that's a familiar thing, isn't it? Paul uses that a lot in his writing, doesn't he? He celebrated faith, hope, and love. That means that's what God does in people when he saves them and when the Spirit gets a hold of them, they become people of growing faith, growing love, and growing hope. And that's what he said that they were. and He celebrated that. That's what happens when people find Jesus. The Holy Spirit begins to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, and they become supernaturally different people. Has that happened to you in knowing Christ? Do you see that in the fellowship here? I do. So it's just interesting that he begins by commending them. Don't forget that in chapter two, he's going to have to get hard on them. Pretty tough. You have to confront them about how they've let certain teaching start to get a little hold in their thinking and they've allowed certain people to hang around that they should have church disciplined and moved out of there. He's going to have to get tough in chapter two, but he loves on them in chapter one. Why? Because they were a good church. They were good people. It's so important to remember that. God's churches are filled with God's Spirit, and God bears good fruit through people that he's made his own. And lots and lots and lots of churches are good churches. We hear all the bad press about churches today and Christian leaders falling today and all this kind of stuff, and we can get pretty grim and glump about the nature of the church. When you hear about the outliers that are in crisis or, or heresy, don't forget that there are so many filled with the Holy Spirit that are good churches. These people were good people. Don't forget that your church is filled and controlled and, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and that God is doing good things in his churches even though there are struggles and difficulties or conflict or difficult, hard things. I just found that as a good reminder. He said the gospel is great because it changes people. Now look at the three dimensions. It creates, first of all, a saving faith and a living faith. They had a saving faith and a living faith. He says, we've heard of your faith, the in the Greek language, the classic word that Paul used for faith. Now, a lot of times in our society, we believe faith is blind. We let the critics convince us that our faith is basically believing something with our eyes squeezed shut because in the back of our minds, we know it probably isn't true, but we need to believe. That's how the critics in our society portray Christians. That's not true at all. Pistuo was a very important word. It meant to have come to a conclusion after you examined the evidence. Throughout the New Testament, when Paul talks about faith, he's talking about a convinced faith based on evidence, not a blind faith, not a desperate faith, not a believing because you want to believe. In fact, I think the secular world is more involved in blind faith than Christians are. We have evidence in history for what we believe. We have remarkable evidences that the Bible is is clearly given by God. We have history that, that backs it up. We have theology that backs it up. We have the testimonies of the lives of changed people that back it up. We have lots of evidences, and these believers, when Epaphras came back and shared the gospel with them, he gave them evidences that confronted their false religion, their idolatry, and everything else, and they became persuaded enough. If I could translate "pistuo," here's the Joe Purse translation, persuaded enough to bet your life on it. Persuaded enough to bet your life. That's how I came to Christ over 30 years ago, from a skeptic's background, I looked at the evidence. I confronted my biases. I examined the lives of Christians. I took a look back at history. I began to read this Bible and just let it say to me what it said. I began to view it without criticism and just let it stand on its own. And I became so convinced and persuaded that I bet my life on the gospel of the cross. And I've never regretted it. You see, they had a saving faith. They were persuaded enough to bet their life on it. But no, notice also, he says, it is a faith in Christ Jesus. That implies, I can't go into all of the details from the Greek to tell you, that implies that they had gone on and they had deepened in their walk with Christ. Ten years ago, they became persuaded that he was someone to bet their lives on and they got saved, and since then, they had been growing in their faith in Jesus. They'd grown to know him better. They'd grown to obey him more. They'd grown to go through deeper trials and still trust him. They'd grown to taste persecution and still follow him, and they had learned to trust God more deeply. That's what Christians do. More properly, that's what he does in you and through you. The gospel is great because it changes lives. How does it change lives? It brings you a saving faith and a living faith. Now we'll go to the next phrase there. He talks about their love. And of the love that you have for all the saints, the gospel produced that. That means they had loving lives without limits. Let me explain. The word love there as you probably have heard from many different preachers, there are many different words in the Greek language, three primary words that talk about different kinds of love. There's a sensual kind of love or, or physical kind, there's a, there's a relational and affectionate dimension of love. But of course, here agapao is used, which is love without expectations or conditions, it's a decision to love. It's love without expectations about how you are be loved back, and it's a love without any conditions that you have to fulfill in order for me to love you. That is the love of the Holy Spirit. Human beings can sensually love. Human beings can even emotionally and relationally, affectionately love. But only people born again with the Spirit inside them can love without conditions or expectations. Because the Bible says... We love because he first loved us. I don't know about you, but when Jesus loved me and died for me, he died for me without conditions or expectations because I couldn't fulfill either one. He saved me just as I was from all my sin. So they had loving lives, but also notice it was without limits. He says, you have love for all the saints. I'm sure right now, as you think about a catalog of people in your mind that are Christians that you're interacting with or have interacting with, maybe in a carnal moment, you kind of wish that that little phrase was not in your Bible, you know, there are some people that don't grow very far in Christ, but they do grow in their ability to irritate you, (laughs) you know? There's some Christians that don't change in their character in those different ways that you wish they would and you expect they should. And and so there's friction and tension. They, They have points of view you don't care about or ways they express it that wound you. That needs to be spoken to, but it does not need to break the dimension of love that you were to have for them because it's an agape love without conditions or expectations we're to love. You say, wow, tall order. Glad you've met the Holy Spirit. He can do it in increasing fashion. And so they were loving in that way. Thirdly, he talked about the fact that all of this happened because they had hope. Look at this. Of this, you, Verse five, rather. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. There's the first one. And of the love you have for all the saints. There's the second dimension in which they were totally different people. They had changed under the gospel, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So there's hope, but look at how it's connected in the passage. You can have faith in deeper dimensions every day in Christ, and you can love people, even the unlovable, in greater ways every day in Christ. Look at verse 5, because of the hope that is laid up within you. Notice the hope that you have causes these other things to be possible in your life That's why it's so important to look at how the scripture flows and how Paul was thinking. You can have greater faith in your Christian life day to day, and you can love the unlovable in greater ways in your Christian life day to day, all because you've got a hope in heaven. What's that all about? Well, the hope is what we know is going to be ours when we get there. And it's not just a fanciful imagination. When he talks about your hoping laid up, the word laid up there was from the Greek Roman society and, and from the business world. It was an accounting term that meant money held in trust. Was it real money? Yeah, it's real money. Was it in a real account? Oh yeah, it's a real account. But by the, by, based on the way the account was set up, you can't access it yet. We call that money in trust today. That's what he's talking about. All the greatness of heaven, all of being with Jesus, all of having no more sin, all of experiencing the beauties of eternity forever, all of walking through the wonders of the new Jerusalem, all of that beauty of a new resurrection body, all of that immeasurable pleasure and possibility is all yours and it's all real and it's laid up for you in heaven. It's in a trust account and one day you will have it. Because of that, he says you can now live in great faith and great love. How? Basically, you can live in greater faith because no matter what you go through in trials that challenge your faith now, you know that one day it'll all be over. And in fact, you know that one day you'll be rewarded for your trials forever. I don't know about you, but that helps me go through what God has assigned to me. I know this is not going to last forever. I know he's sovereignly designed in my life, so I grow in Christ. And I know he'll reward me for my trials. Do you ever think about that? We think, well, we'll be rewarded in heaven for all of our service. Oh, that's true. But you're also going to be rewarded for all your trials. Because you went through that for his name, didn't you? So knowing that there's a hope of great reward makes trials easier to go through, and it allows you to have greater and longer longer faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What about love? Why can you love, Paul says, more deeply? Because you know heaven is set for you. Because basically, if you know everything you've ever wanted and beyond that is going to be yours someday when you step into heaven, you know you have everything you'll ever want, then holding on and fighting over what you have here or what you're interested in here takes on a lot less significance. If all things are going to eventually be, be, be yours, there's a lot less to fight about or be intention about here. It's just kind of an interesting connection to it all. So, first of the reasons of the greatness of the gospel. It's great because it changes lives quickly to the last two for today. Let's go and finish verse 5. The second reason the gospel is great is because it's good news you say, well, I've heard that before. Let me bring you a deeper dimension of it. He talks about all of this being centered around the gospel. The last two words in verse 5 are sort of like the center of the, how this whole passage turns. The gospel, the gospel is why this all happens. And it's good news The Greek word gospel, we translated there as euangelion, came from true Greek words. Angelion meant to announce something, an announcement. And eu was the prefix that meant good. And so it was a good announcement. We call it good news. Good news of what? Go down to verse 13 and 14 in your your Bibles in Colossians 1. The good news that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The good news is about you being delivered from a terrible enemy who dominated you in his domain of darkness. And you've been transferred from one captive kingdom to a kingdom of freedom. That's good news. I think even the origin of the word good news in the Greek culture speaks to this. I don't know if you know how the, wor- the origin of the word euangelion was and what people understood it to be. Euangelion, gospel, before Christians were inspired by the Holy Spirit's usage of it to use that as the gospel, euangelion was used commonly in Roman and Greek culture and it related mostly to the culture of war and battle. Listen to this. In Greek society, particularly in ancient Greece in the the several centuries before the time of Christ, Greece was divided up into different city states. They were all independent kingdoms, and they each had a capital city. They were a state unto themselves with their own government and their own armies. And when you get that many city states in a regional space, they battled each other over territory and, and riches. And so Greece was torn by many different wars between different city states. And when a city-state would send its army out of its gates to go to war against another city-state in a far distant place, everybody in the capital city would then wait anxiously for word back about which city-state won the battle. Of course, there was only one way in that time to get that word, and that was through a messenger who would run from the battlefield when the battle had been decided and would run virtually nonstop back to the capital city of your city-state. And he would bring you news Either of defeat or victory. If that messenger came over the horizon and the people were gazing 24 7 out to watch him, and when he came, if he was not running, but if he was barely walking, if his head wasn't up, but it was down, if you could see even from a distance that his clothes were torn, he had no weapon, and he was limping home, you knew without hearing him that your city state had been defeated and that the announcement would be a bad one. On the other hand, if you gazed out over the wall and in the dawn of that day you began to see this messenger not limping but running. Running with his head up. And even at that distance you could see the shine on his face and the glint in his eyes. And if he had a a spear with him and on top of that spear had been laced a garland which meant victory, you knew before he arrived in the city square that the announcement would be victory. And when he did come into the center of the city and he stood before the gathered crowds and the king of the city-state, he would announce, Galleon!" Good news. News of victory. News that they had been freed from a state that wanted to dominate them. What is the gospel? Look at Colossians 1, 13 and 14. It's good news of deliverance from the city-state of Satan where you and I, because we were born sinners, have been enslaved, verse 13 of Colossians 1. And O God, through his son, conquered the city-state of Satan and we have been transferred to the city-state of his son, to the kingdom of his beloved son, and we're going to be free forever. That's good news. This is the gospel. And he said, don't you ever let anybody cheapen it. Here's the last, and I close. The greatness of the gospel, it's great because it changes lives. It's great lives. It's great because it's good news. And finally, it's great because it's pure truth. Look at verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth. The gospel. What is the gospel? It is the only truth. It is pure truth. Notice he uses the, the, the defining word the twice. You've heard it in the word of the truth. The gospel is exclusive truth. It's politically incorrect. It says it's the only truth about how men and women are set free to know God. Remember the two purposes of Colossians. One is to exalt the greatness of Christ and the other is to defeat false teaching, And so what he does here in the very beginning of this epistle is he reminds them that the gospel they heard, uh, this you have heard 10 years before when that little church started, is still the word of the truth. You don't need any other gospel. Even though these false teachers are telling you they've got new revelation and they've got a new gospel. You don't need any works to perform to get into heaven. You've already been sent to Christ's city-state. You're already free men and women. You don't need any other gospel. It is the word of the truth. It is pure truth. Doesn't have any any competitors at all. Dr. Barclay, the Bible researcher, put it this way. All other religions could be entitled guesses about God, but the Christian gospel gives us not guesses, but certainties about God. Remember what it means to believe. It means to look at the evidence and bet your life on it. And so he's telling these Colossians at the beginning before he gets into warning them about false gospels, stand on the gospel you've got. It's great on its own. He says, you've heard this gospel. Of this you have heard. What is he talking about? Ten years before when Epaphras came back from Ephesus and he shared the gospel with them and he showed them the proofs and the evidences and they heard it and they believed and they were saved. He says, listen, nothing's changed about this gospel. You heard it, now stand in it. There is no other gospel coming. There is no other message you need to listen to. Let me put it in a different phrase. He was trying to tell them, when it comes to the gospel, God didn't stutter. Okay? That's the greatest answer to false teaching in churches today. Wait a minute. God didn't stutter. There are churches around today that believe we've been wrong for 2,000 years in how we've interpreted the Bible. I'm serious, that's how they found themselves. We've discovered that we were wrong about the gospel, about the cross, about Christ, about sin, about death, about hell, about heaven, about it all. You're all wrong. And now we're basically going to go on a journey to kind of figure out what might be right. <laughs> These are churches of deception and wandering. Oh no. God didn't stutter. God didn't get it wrong 2,000 years ago. God doesn't have something he has yet to learn. The gospel stands. So he's telling listen to these Colossians, don't step down for something less. It's been once for all delivered to you. Let's stop there. I hope you're getting from me that the gospel is a powerful thing. It can rescue any life and restore any person from any, in any place from any past. It changes people into the likeness of Jesus Christ in their character. Dr. Starker, the commentator, put it this way. Where the gospel is faithfully preached and affectionately believed, there is gradually wrought into the very features of people the stamp of the Son of Man darkened, selfish, blinded people more and more reflect in their character the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. That's a supernatural work. That's the most wondrous thing that ever happens on the planet. Now, if the gospel can do that in the lives of people, if you were the devil, where would you train your guns? what would you start aiming at more than anything? Would you increase your, your efforts to keep the world in deception and keep lost people in bondage? Well, actually, 1 John 5, 19 says that the whole world is in the lap of the evil one. He's got pretty heavy control already. <laughs> no, you would target a saving gospel, wouldn't you? Ever notice that False teachers never get sent to non-believers, they get sent to true believers. <laughs> false teachers trouble true churches. Why? Because their goal is to take those who have found the truth and deceive them away from the truth. So they can't tell somebody else the truth. Makes perfect sense. That's why only true believers are troubled by false teachers, and true churches are troubled by false teachers and that's true in every age. We say, wow, I know this is an age when false teaching is pretty heavy. How do we defend ourselves? I think you're already finding out. Understand the greatness of the gospel. Let me repeat that. How do you defend yourself against all the false teaching whirling around us in, in Christianity today? Understand the greatness of the gospel you be committed to the greatness of the gospel, know that God didn't stutter, know that what he's delivered to you is once for all delivered to you, and that nothing else can change your life or or bring you spiritual deliverance, then you won't abandon it. I mean, after all, why would you abandon something that's pure truth, that changed your life, and is the best news you ever heard?